Welcome to the latest Fun's Fan Podcast. I'm Kyle Caldwell, the Collectives Editor at Interactive Investor, and today I'm delighted to be joined by my new co-host, Sam Benstead. Sam is Interactive Investor's Deputy Collectives Editor. He joined Interactive Investor this week from The Telegraph. Sam, welcome to the Fun's Fan Podcast. Hi, Kyle. It's great to be here. So later on in the podcast is an interview that I recorded last week with Simon Gergel, who is full manager of the Merchants Trust, which has a bias to UK value shares. The interview was recorded before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So unfortunately, wasn't able to ask Gergel for his views on the investment implications of that. But there were plenty of interesting topics covered, including Gergel's thoughts on the market rotation that's been playing out of late, which in theory should benefit merchants given its approach. But to start off, I thought a good place to start, Sam, is to ask you how you personally invest and introduce yourself to the Funds Fan Podcast listeners. Sure, thanks Kyle. So I joined from The Telegraph, like you said, where I covered investment for a couple of years. Before that, I was at CityWire, um, writing investment stories for the professional investor audience. But yeah, I think it would be fantastic to think to talk about where I invest. Before going into that, I think it's really important to um, to speak about my broader personal finance picture at the moment and how that affects what goes into my portfolio. So last year, I was able to buy a flat. So now everything is invested genuinely for a long period, which I put at five to 10 years. This allows me to take more risk than many people and focus on technology companies, which I think is an area where profits will grow a lot in the future. So I've started to rebuild my savings pot with monthly contributions to just four funds. I want to keep things simple and avoid jumping on every exciting idea I come across. The first fund, and this is a passive fund, is the Legal and General Global Technology Index Trust. It tracks about 250 technology stocks for 0.32% in annual fees. In technology, big is beautiful. Be it, be it search results getting smarter, so crowding up competition, economies of scale and building cloud computing networks, or having the cash to invest in emerging areas like artificial intelligence, the biggest companies I think are gonna be the ones that are gonna profit the most in the future. By investing in an index, it's gonna keep buying more companies, more shares in companies as they get bigger. Another technology stock I own is the HG Capital Investment Trust. This is a bit of a quirky portfolio. It owns a small uh, concentrated basket of private software companies. These are things like HR software, payroll software, um, software that controls machinery, accounting tools, things that are essential for, for, for clients, for businesses to keep their business operating. Um, it's very boring technology, but very, very profitable. Um, and since HG, which is the private equity fund manager, took over in 1994, it has literally been one of the top performing investment trusts on the market. For me, that proves that boring technology is a winning approach. Another technology trust I own is Scottish Mortgage, but that takes the opposite approach to investing as HG Capital. It owns speculative technology stocks, from gene editing firms to battery factories and flying car companies. They're trying to find the next big thing, um, and I back them to do that. The final fund I own takes a completely different approach to investing. It's the Schroeder Global Recovery Fund. This is looking for cheap companies, value stocks, which can bounce back. It owns companies like banks and insurers and mining companies and oil firms. 
Um, and all these stocks actually should do quite well at the moment as interest rates rise, as investors are more drawn to companies which make a lot of money today than those that profits that than those that promise profits tomorrow. You might be reading, you might be listening and thinking, oh, he's invested in a lot of growth companies, and that's right. And I think you know this is a big big risk going forward into the next year as inflation keeps growing. But if I take that five to ten year view then I always end up concluding that technology is the right way to go. This is where the profits are going to be. So I'm sticking with this approach. Well, Sam, my stocks and shares, ISA, has a bit of similarity to yours in regards to uh, technology. You know, I, I feel that my ISA is a bit overexposed to tech. Um, Scottish Mortgage is uh, my biggest holding. It's a, an investment trust that I've held for over a decade. So I am thinking about potentially adding a value fund or value investment trust to give my investment portfolio a greater balance in terms of investment style. I'm taking a good look at it now at the moment for two reasons. The first is because we're in the run-up to the tax year end. And the second is because, as you mentioned, Sam, there has been a market rotation that's been playing out in recent weeks, which has been hurting uh, the short-term performance of technology shares. Sam, you mentioned the Legal and General Global Technology Index Trust, which you have um, in your ISA along with three actively managed funds. So what's your thoughts on the active versus passive debate? For me, investment is as much a hobby and interest as it is a career. So I I love this job because I'm always trying to figure out what things mean um, with regards to technology, politics, economics. That lends itself to picking active fund managers whose investment views align with mine. That said, the recent downturn in technology stocks has, has really carried, it's really kind of brought quite a big emotional burden on me and watching you know, my, my, my investments falling. Um, so that has kind of increased the appeal of, of investing in, in a passive fund. Um, so aside from stripping out the risk of picking the wrong fund manager with a passive fund, fund you don't really have to worry about markets falling and you just have to keep investing regularly because you're not taking so much of an active position on what will and won't do well. However, given that all my pensions are invested in baskets of tracker funds, which are not that risky, I'm happy to take extra risks in my ISA in the pursuit of extra returns. Uh, This is why three out of my four funds are actively managed. And even the passive one, the Global Technology Index, that's me taking an active view on technology stocks as one of the big areas for the future. Um, one of the key advantages of that fund is that there's no limit um, to how big the single single holding in the portfolio can grow. Whereas active funds have a 10% cap, open-ended active funds have a 10% cap on position size. This fund has no cap. So at the moment, it has 16% invested in Apple and 14% invested in Microsoft. And I like that. I like that it can keep investing more as companies get bigger. So my view on the active versus passive debate is that it's not an either or debate. For most people, it's sensible to mix and match. However, if you don't want to put the work in and try and find an active full manager that is worth his or her salt, then you can gain plenty of diversification through picking a developed market index fund or exchange traded fund which track hundreds or even in some cases thousands of shares. A key attraction of going down the passive route is the is the simplicity of it. Investors know from the outset that they'll broadly get the return of the stock market index that they've chosen. But when it comes to active funds, the key is to make sure that you pick one 
or pick a number of them that are genuinely active and are at the very least attempting to add value. Some active funds underperform due to the fund manager making the wrong calls. Others, however, are designed to fail as they are index huggers or closet trackers. Such funds do not deviate significantly from the index. And as a result of this, investors tend to underperform the index due to a combination of the fund not being active enough and the yearly fee eating into the investment returns. A key reason why these funds continue to exist is because some fund managers fear losing their jobs if they notably underperform the index. As a result, they play it safe, but this is a detriment to their investors who are still paying fees for the fund to be actively managed. And my top tip to avoid a potential closet tracker, it's quite a simple one, is to look at the top 10 holdings of an active fund, compare them with the top 10 constituents in the benchmark index. If there's a large overlap, then that, for me, sets off alarm bells that the fund may not be active enough. And also examine how the fund has performed against the benchmark index over both short and long-term time periods. Have a look at the chart, the performance chart that is. And if the line looks similar over both the short and long term, then in my view, the fund manager is probably not taking enough active decisions. We're now going to move on to Russia and Ukraine. In terms of the investment implications for funds, there have been a couple of fund suspensions announced this week. Sam, could you run through them and, and explain why they have suspended? War in Ukraine is going to be the big investment story um, well into this year, I think. And the response of uh, the international community was to issue sanctions against Russia. These included blocking some of its banks from the SWIFT interbank payment system and blocking access to Russia's foreign currency reserves held in America, the EU and Britain. Fund managers and companies also placed to unload stakes in Russian companies, such as oil firms Gazprom and Rosneft. All these sanctions have caused the value of Russian companies to crash and also um, sparked a run on the ruble as well. In response, the Russian central bank actually shut its stock market. It's been shut all week and will remain so for the foreseeable future. This all means that it's become impossible to buy and sell Russian stocks, which has led a number of funds to suspend trading. This is when they block investors from buying or selling units as they would struggle to raise the cash to return to them. So far, Lion Trust Russia, JP Morgan Emerging Europe, Picto Russia and Bearings Eastern Europe, which have about a billion pounds in assets in them, have temporarily shut. The fund managers really have no choice to, to shut these funds. Um, they wouldn't have taken the decision lightly and, they, and, they, and they've all pledged to monitor the situation closely. But because they can't trade Russian assets, there's no way of selling them to return cash to investors. And the chances are, Sam, there's, there's probably been more fund suspensions that have occurred than this. And the likelihood is that more will follow. Obviously, fund management firms, they're not going to want to shout from the rooftops when they do suspend funds. And I think I've only had one press release of a fund suspension And there's been a few more that have suspended, as you've already mentioned, Sam. With the Moscow Stock Exchange closed, fund managers cannot sell assets to meet investor redemptions. When it does open, I wouldn't expect the fund suspensions to be lifted straight away. I think funds will want to avoid selling assets on the cheap and negatively impacting investors that are remaining in the funds. So I'd expect them to instead bide their time. 
I agree. I, I expect to see some more suspensions. Um, this could come from emerging market funds. Some of them have got up to 15% invested in Russia. It isn't as much as you know Russia funds, which have almost everything invested there, or even Eastern Europe funds, which have about 65% invested there on average. But if there's enough panic and investors want to take their money out of their emerging market funds, then fund managers might have to step in and cease trading. A couple of funds to watch include the Bailey Gifford Emerging Market Strategy, um, that had about 10% in Russia as of January, as well as the UBS Global Emerging Markets Fund at about, 80%, at about 8% in Russia. Another interesting thing to watch in this area is the JP Morgan Russian Securities Investment Trust. So because it's an investment trust and the shares trade on the London Stock Exchange, there's no way of closing the fund. Um, even though the, the, the value of the shares is, is frozen as the Moscow stock market is shut, the shares listed in London have been swinging violently. Um, since since the Russia invasion, they're down about eighty percent. Um, this is a bit of a this is an indicator of how of how far Russian stocks could fall when the market opens again, um, and it really is a, a remarkable move. And all these investors in, in open-ended funds that have been suspended are going to be watching that um, kind of hiding away, really, because that that is a signal uh, about where their their portfolio is at the moment. It's a good point you just made there, Sam, about investment trusts. They won't suspend, but the share price can be severely punished. With JP Morgan, Russian Securities Investment Trust, a case in point. Some investors, though, have been attempting to buy low. JP Morgan, Russian Securities Investment Trust, entered Interact Investors' top 10 most popular investment trust table for February. Interestingly, the trust has its AGM. Uh, this Friday, Friday the 4th of March, which is the day that this podcast is being published, among the items shareholders can vote on is a continuation vote. This, however, is not in response to recent events. Instead, it's a vote that takes place every five years. So you couldn't have made up the timing of it, to be honest. We on ii.co.uk will keep readers up to date regarding which way the vote goes. So do keep an eye out for that. Sam, we're going to end on Janice Henderson's Global Dividend Index, which was published earlier this week. Could you summarise the main findings? Yeah, so this was a really interesting report and actually great news for investors. So fund manager Janice Henderson found that last year was a record year for global dividend payments. Companies redistributed about $1.5 trillion um, back to shareholders. And one of the main drivers of this, of this boom was from mining companies, which made a lot more money last year as commodity prices rose and made special dividend payments to their shareholders. Janice Hendon also predicted another record year for dividends. He said that mining dividends would probably fall, but the shortfall would be made up by oil stocks, technology stocks, and bank stocks. Um, so that was the key takeaway from this report, really, where the next year's biggest dividends would come from. And this report came out before the real crisis in Ukraine. Um, and it was already saying that oil companies would be some of the biggest payers. So that's great for UK investors. Um, obviously, Shell and BP are in the, the FTSE 100. Investors can buy those, and they're, and they're quite diversified as, as oil companies. So that's probably one of the least risky ways of, of buying oil stocks. They could also just buy a FTSE 100 tracker um, to own banks, to own oil companies, and really um, profit from this, this big year of payments or payouts that we expect to see.
Manager Guest. In this episode, I'm joined by Simon Gergel, full manager of the Merchants Trust. So Simon, could you firstly summarise your investment process and run through the types of UK value shares that you invest in? Yeah. Hi, Carl. Well, for the Merchants Trust, we are trying to buy predominantly large cap UK companies with a high income stream. So we're, we're fishing in the pond of high dividend shares, but that doesn't drive the investment approach. The way we look for companies, we look for three things. We look for companies that are fundamentally sound. We look for attractive valuation and we look for a supportive thematic environment. By fundamentally sound, what we mean is companies with strong market positions, with a robust financial profile, with effective governance, where we understand the environmental and social risks and all the other risks in the business. And we look for good businesses. In terms of valuation, we're looking for companies that are cheap compared to their history or cheap compared to other companies we can buy in the market. And we particular, particularly focus on cash flow and cash generation because cash is often the most important measure and the purest measure of company valuation. And then in terms of themes, we're looking for companies that have an, an environment that's gradually getting better or supportive for, for their business model, where, for example, demographic changes might be helping them or the, the digital economy might be helping them. And in particular, we're trying to avoid companies that look cheap, but they have structural headwinds, which are sometimes called value traps. Uh, and if you, can find, if you can find a combination of companies that are fundamentally good businesses that are pr- priced below what they're really worth, where they have a supportive background, a supportive thematic environment, that could be quite a powerful combination. And, and that's what we're looking for. And for a value investor such as yourself, how much of a benefit has the market rotation been in recent weeks, which has seen value shares return to favour at the expense of growth shares? Well, as a value investor, we do benefit when there is a rotation from higher growth to more lowly rated companies, but it's certainly not been the dominant factor in our performance. Indeed, we've delivered very strong performance in the two or three years before this year in an environment that's been more difficult for value investors, in fact, very difficult for value investors generally. So if you pick the right companies um, and you avoid the wrong companies, then you can still deliver good performance even in an environment that's not that favourable. Having said that, we may well be in a period that's a bit better for value investors going forwards because interest rates are starting to rise, whereas they've been generally falling for much of the last decade or even more. And the big question now is, Will this rotation continue playing out throughout 2022? It is a big question, and it's very hard to to answer. It may well continue because inflation has picked up and interest rates are likely to, to, to rally. And therefore, the discount rate that investors use for higher growth companies has gone up. And, and those higher growth companies are therefore potentially worth, worth less than they were thought to be worth a few months ago. So it could carry on, but, but it's very hard to know. As I said, we we don't depend on that for our stock selection and our performance. We try to buy good companies at sensible prices, and we think that will be rewarded in the medium to long term. But if we do, if that environment carries on, that's that's so much the better. And the UK market, it's performed very well over the past year, and it's also booked the trend since the start of this year. It's made a a positive return, whereas the majority of other markets have, have made losses. Are you still finding plenty of value opportunities in the UK market? And what have been the most recent changes to the Merchants Trust in terms of existing holdings or new holdings? Uh, Yes, in in short, we are still finding opportunities. The UK market has started to perform, perform better, but it is one of the cheapest markets of major markets in the world. 
and it's really polarized. There's, within the market, there's a very wide spread of valuations and opportunities. So there are plenty of companies that meet our criteria, good, good businesses at sensible prices, and we are finding lots of opportunities. Uh, in, in terms of recent changes, they've not been dramatic. We have taken some profits on a, a few of the companies in the, in the more commodity area that have started to perform very well, um, some of the energy companies, and reinvested that into uh, some of the other other holdings in the company in in the portfolio, some of the um, consumer areas, for example, maybe the house builders where we see good value. But we've not made dramatic changes in the last two or three months. And with inflation in the UK at a thirty-year high, do you feel more pressure to deliver a real return for investors? And have you been making changes to the portfolio at all to add in some inflation protection? such as through investing in companies that possess pricing power? Well, pricing power is a really important part of um, understanding any business, really, to understand whether it has a, a competitive advantage and can pass prices through. We've always looked at that as a factor and that many companies in our portfolio have the ability to pass on pricing. Some is in a regulated way. So if you have a regulated utility, they're allowed to charge prices linked to inflation, which is helpful. Some some get it in the commodity area where clearly rising commodity prices, which fuel inflation, also fuel the profitability of those companies. And some have it more indirectly because they are able to pass those prices on because of the, the strength of their competitive position. So it's it's always been a factor. We've not dramatically changed the portfolio because of quite slightly higher recent inflation. And I think some of that recent inflation is likely to be transitory. The the very high change year on year in the cost of energy and the cost of food and some other products is likely to subside and, and become less of a factor. So I think inflation will gradually come back. It's going to be higher than it has been for the last few years, probably, but I don't think it's going to be sustained at the levels we're seeing right now. And how sustainable is the trust's dividend yield, which is currently just under 5%? Well, a major objective for the trust is to del deliver a high and rising dividend yield, and it's something that the board focuses on very closely, and so do we as, as managers. We have seen a really encouraging recovery in the income being generated by the portfolio since the pandemic, since the middle of 2020. In dividends have recovered probably quicker than we thought they might do, and so we are seeing an improving uh, trajectory on the income. The directors have been willing to use dividend reserves to keep growing the dividend every year when they've been under pressure, particularly last year. And as I say, that that is that environment's improving. And the chairman has been very explicit in the last annual report of saying that they recognise the objective of having having a progressive dividend policy, a rising dividend policy for investors, and they will be willing to use res reserves absent a significant deterioration in the outlook for income. And we're not seeing that deterioration. If anything, we're actually seeing a, an improvement in the outlook for income generation. So we're we're very we're very uh, confident that we can keep keep um, growing the dividends into the future, although obviously you can never make a promise in this world. So how confident are you that the trust will continue um, being a dividend hero? Um, is the trust on track it to in April grow its dividends for the 40th consecutive year? We are on track for that. And in fact, indeed, the directors in, in on the third interim dividend, we, we pay four dividends a year. On the third interim dividend for the year, the directors did actually increase the dividend this year, so we are on track, provided we maintain the final dividend for our higher dividend payment to, to shareholders this year. 
But I think the confidence comes from A, the recovering recovery we're seeing in the underlying income in the portfolio, but also the very significant reserves that we have that were built up in good times to to, to um, see the trust through in more rainy times, more difficult times. And those reserves uh, give us some, some confidence and the ability to smooth dividend payments to investors and, and to keep on that trajectory. And finally, a question that we ask all fund managers that appear on the podcast, do you have skin in the game? Yes, it, I have a significant investment in Merchant Trust. It's my largest personal investment. Um, so yes, absolutely have skin in the game. Simon, thank you for your time today and thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening and I hope that you've enjoyed it. There's plenty of fund, investment trust and ETF analysis on the II website. That's ii.co.uk. So do check it out. The next Funds Fan podcast will be in a couple of weeks.